Well, earlier this week, Dr. Al Mohler discussed an article on the briefing that is worth significant consideration. As reported by both the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, the CDC has indicated that there's a significant number of young people, and particularly girls, who are reporting record levels of sadness and depression. One of the writers for the Wall Street Journal, by the name of Sarah Toy, said this, nearly three out of five high school girls in the U.S. who were surveyed reported feelings of persistent sadness or hopelessness in 2021, a roughly 60% increase over the past decade. She goes on to say that both high school girls and boys reported experiencing mental health challenges. Girls reported record high levels. And then what's listed after that is sexual violence, sadness, and suicide risk. End quote. Now, there are probably a number of reasons for this kind of reporting. This kind of reporting wasn't as popular a decade ago. What I mean is that the attention to the care of self, scrutiny to self, has grown exponentially over recent years. That's really all people are talking about nowadays. What do you think about yourself? How do you feel about yourself? Taking care of yourself. Now, self-centeredness is not new, per se, But speaking about yourself, referring to yourself, expressing care for yourself has become a focus in our society. Thus, going out of your way to report, to self-report feelings of depression and discouragement will certainly increase. Additionally, there are, particularly for adolescents, more avenues of pressure to conform to certain images. Peer pressure has always been a thing, but now you can experience peer pressure 24 hours a day, seven days a week by means of various social media outlets, which we have welcomed into our homes and literally placed into the hands of our children at increasingly younger ages. On social media, the pressure to conform to be glamorized, perfect images presented by their peers as well as other influencers, athletes, and Hollywood alike has also grown exponentially over the years. Add to that the current fluid concept of the self, You can no longer count on the reality of biological sex to determine something as simple as gender. Now children are being told they have to determine their own gender. Of all the things that are uncertain in life, one thing that has historically been certain is that there are males and females in society, but you can no longer even count on that reality. As much as the world tries to paint this new development as progress, it most certainly adds to the angst felt by the younger generations. Adolescence is already a time of great angst. What you are learning about life has changed. The way you think about life has changed. The way you see the world has changed. Your body is changing. Hormones are raging. All of this makes for a lot of uncertainty in life. Dr. Al Mohler said it this way concerning adolescence. Quote, there's a bit of what the Germans called Sturm und Drang. It's a bit of stress and turmoil. In one sense, that's the very definition psychologically and emotionally of adolescence. They recognized, the Germans, that there was a transitional period between childhood and adulthood, and of necessity, both physically and emotionally, it was going to be something of a roller coaster. In other words, during this time period of your life, which is already characterized by Sturm und Drang, 
The psychological and emotional stress and turmoil that occurs naturally as one transitions from childhood to adulthood. During this fragile time of life, children are now expected to figure out their gender and what is perhaps an ever-changing gender identity of their peer group. They're expected to properly manage thinking rightly about themselves while they frequently receive message messages from the same peer group along with others on social media who are telling them that their bodies are not enough, their experience of life is not enough, their experience of and experiments with sexuality is not enough. They're to weed through all these things while making good grades in school, preparing for college, knowing what they want to be when they grow up, and a host of other unstated expectations. And children are supposed to manage through all of these things, being counseled only by the school systems, by their school counselors. There's an ever-growing conversation in the public square as to whether or not the school system even has to consult parents when their children are coming in talking about different genders. Instead, they are to consult their teachers. They consult doctors. They consult judges. And these folks help them to make these life-altering decisions about transitioning genders solely based on whatever adolescent feelings they have that day. It's really no wonder why children these days are experiencing so much sadness and depression. Now, just to be clear, there is a measure of that uncertainty about life that is normal in adolescence. But it is certainly also being amplified as the roles of parents are being subtly and often not so subtly subverted. Well, we are continuing in our series in the book of Ephesians. Now, I've been examining the exhortation to walk in a manner worthy of our calling in Christ. In particular, we have been called to walk in wisdom. We've noted that to walk in wisdom requires being filled with the Holy Spirit. To that end, we noted that the Spirit-filled Christians are those who submit in ways that are appropriate for different relationships that they have in life. In the section we've been considering most recently in Ephesians 5, we've been examining the Lord's design for the family. He's established an authority structure in the family, and in particular between the husband and wife, in order to communicate the beauty of the relationship that Jesus has with the church. This has been the plan and intent of God from the very beginning. Moses said in the beginning, after the Lord provided a wife for the first man, Adam, from bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh, Moses said this, for this reason shall a man leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. And in accord with his apostolic authority and role, Paul revealed the mystery of that statement, meaning that there was a purpose and intent in the plan of God that had not been previously revealed, but that Paul had the privilege of revealing as he wrote the letter to the Ephesians in chapter 5. In chapter 5, verse 32, Paul quoted that passage from Genesis, and he stated that the mystery was that God had always intended for marriage to be a reference of Jesus' relationship with the church that's part of the reason why we must get marriage right we must get marriage right because it was given by God designed by God given clear parameters by God marriage is a union of one man and one woman before God who are called to keep the command of God the wife submitting to the headship of her husband the husband loving his wife sacrificially for her good We must get marriage right so that all, both the church and the greater unbelieving world, so that all will see a clear picture of Jesus' relationship with the church reflected in our homes. As wives submit to their husbands in everything in obedience to Jesus' command, watching eyes are enabled to see the submissiveness of the church to her head, who is Jesus Christ. 
as husbands love their wives sacrificially in obedience to Jesus' command, watching eyes are able to see how Jesus has poured out himself sacrificially in love for his church. Regardless of what the other party does, both the husband and wife have their responsibility before the Lord and as long as they both shall live. Marriage, God's way, is a high calling, should never be entered into lightly, ought to be regarded as sacred, as permanent, just as Jesus' relationship is with the church and should be pursued in accord with that design, which God has intended from the very beginning. Well, as we move on in the text in Ephesians, we're reminded of another reason why we must get marriage right, for it is in the context of this discussion on marriage that we see the Lord's teaching on parenting. These two are not separate issues. As marriage is the union of a man and woman who have left their fathers and mothers to be united together, this union, this new oneness that they experience is the creation of a new family unit. As this new family unit operates as God has designed and declared it should operate, children expand and grow this new family unit as God gifts them to the children, to the parents. And thus we see his expectations for how this expanded family ought to operate in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Well, let's read the entire section once again for context on the family, chapter 5, verse 22 through 6, 4. And then we'll focus in on those first four verses of chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the body, because we are members, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Lord, we do thank you for your word, which is true. Your word does sanctify us. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your word this morning. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in this section, children are called to obey their parents for the glory of God and their good. And parents are called to raise their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. A simple outline we find in verses 1 through 3, children are called to obey their parents for the glory of God. And in verse 4, parents are called to convey the glory of God to their children. Children, obey your parents for the glory of God. Parents, 
convey the glory of God to your children. Well, let's look at the first point. Children are to obey their parents for the glory of God. Again, verses one through three. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. This verse is addressed to children. Two things we have to assume off the bat. First, that the children being referenced are capable of understanding the words that are being said. In other words, he was directly addressing children in the audience at Ephesus. It is a command directed to children, not to parents. This text assumes that the children were a part of the life of the church, not separate from the general assembly. Now, that may have looked different in in antiquity, but I think it argues for family worship within the body of Christ. What I mean by that is that perhaps at a young age, we have things like nursery or children's Sunday school hour for the very young, but that ultimately that is not the goal. Ultimately, the goal is to have families worship together, and that is a good thing. Even if you have kids calling out in the back or babies crying, it's totally okay because that's life, and we're a body, and we're a family, and so that's a good thing. Another thing that this is generally understood to mean is that it references children who are dependent on their parents. Children who have grown and moved out of the home are not in view here. Children who have left father and mother, having cleaved to their spouse and therefore having created a new family unit, no longer dependent on their parents are not in view here. The children are those who come together with their parents to worship and who abide with their parents at home and are dependent on them in this text. Is there an age for this listed? No, there's not an age listed, and it really doesn't need to be. Again, the issue is that of dependence. Are they still dependent on their parents? Are they still in the home? Are they still being brought to fellowship with their parents as a dependent? Certainly, you may have some children who are at home who are older, but I ask again, are they considered dependents? I think that whatever your particular situation is, you can probably figure that out, but generally, we're referring to younger children. So again, you, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. I've said multiple times as we've looked through this section that submission is a key term, but Paul doesn't use the word submission here to refer to the children, but rather he uses a term that's more appropriate for the relationship between parents and children. He calls them to obey. They're not at the stage in life, in other words, where they would need to be told to submit or to arrange themselves under the authority of another. They don't have the option not to. They don't have that kind of relationship with their parents. The kind of relationship that they have does not provide them with that option. Children are simply required to obey. The word itself means something like to listen or to hear under. The implication is that those who obey do so by hearing a command and placing themselves under that command immediately. The authority is already there by virtue of the relationship that they have. The emphasis here is on the child's obedience to the words of the one in authority. Commands are given, children hear and obey. Instruction is given, children hear and follow that instruction, period. That's what obedience means. It's an immediate response to an instruction or command given by someone who's in authority. One author said it this way, obedience involves conscious listening. If you do not really listen, you cannot really obey. This is why parents are always saying, hey, listen to me. The idea, is to listen, the idea is to listen under with the intent to understand and do it, end quote. Now, we all understand what it means to obey, right? If someone's pointing a gun at you and they tell you to put your hands up, it's a command, not a suggestion. There's no room for options. You cannot choose to disobey. You understand that if you choose to disobey, there are going to be consequences for it. 
If it's optional, then there would be no consequences for disregarding the instruction. But a command carries with it the expectation of immediate obedience. Children are commanded to obey their parents. You're not commanded to obey everyone's parents. You're not commanded to obey teachers in the same way. You're not commanded to obey your peers in the same way. You are commanded to obey your parents. Again, the text says, obey your parents in the Lord. Well, what does that mean? It means the same thing as when we spoke of the wife's submission to her husband and the husband's love for his wife. They were to obey those commands, the wife to submit, the husband to love, regardless of what the other person does. They were expected to obey the wife to submit, husband to love, in obedience to Christ. Likewise, children, you are commanded by Jesus, your creator and savior of all who put their faith in him. You are commanded by Jesus, who is Lord, to obey your parents. Period. I don't always like what they say. You still need to obey. They don't always listen to me. You still need to obey. My friends, my favorite artist or athlete makes more sense to me when they explain the way of the world and their own experience. Well, you still need to obey your parents. I don't think they're believers. You still need to obey your parents. Respond immediately to do whatever is instructed or commanded by your parents. Now, the same caveat belongs here that I gave for wives who are commanded to submit to their husbands. Certainly, if anyone in authority over you instructs you to do something that you know God has commanded otherwise, you should rather obey God than men. In other words, regardless of who it is, if you're instructed to disobey, you should disobey their instruction and instead do what you know is right in God's eyes. And of course, we're talking about clear instruction of the Lord, not just your opinion or something you like or dislike, right? You should always seek to obey Christ first. And there may be consequences with that, particularly as you are a child in the home of your parents. But you should always, under every circumstance, seek to obey Christ first. If you need help with that, seek counsel, seek wisdom from those who are older and wiser. But obedience is the command here. Moving on again, this is the command of the Lord for you, children. Obey your parents. The text says this is right. It is right to do in the Lord's eyes. Colossians 3.20 says it this way, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. If you want to do what is well-pleasing to the Lord, children, then you should obey your parents. Children, if the Lord were to draw you to heaven this day before you had the opportunity to go out into the world, into society to make a difference, before you had the opportunity to do good for others, before you had the opportunity to have your own family, your own job, to have your own home, to raise your own children, if you were brought before God today, before you had the opportunity to do any of those other things, do you know what the Lord would ask you and evaluate you based on? He would evaluate you based on whether you followed this command to obey your parents. One of the most frequent indictments against the world in Scripture is rampant disobedience of children. Romans chapter 1, verses 29 through 31 is a prime example. He talks about those who are filled with all manner of unrighteousness. And he goes on. Evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, they're slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. He says something similar in 2 Timothy chapter 3. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, and he goes on. 
In the Old Testament law, there were some cases where disobedient children were even stoned to death as a consequence. Now, that may sound harsh, but the reality is that disobedient children become disobedient adults. Adults who disobey and disrespect all authority. And God takes that very seriously. This is not a small thing. He says it is right for you to obey your parents. It is not right for you to disobey your parents. Obedience is necessary in part because it shows honor. Look at verses 2 and 3. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long on the land. This is a quotation probably from Exodus 20, verse 12 and Deuteronomy 5, 16, where children are first commanded in the law to honor their father and mother. And we frequently cite the Ten Commandments as indicative of God's greatest standard, right? It is telling that part of that standard involves a command of God to children to honor their parents. One of the top ten things that God wanted Israel to make sure they were careful to do was to raise children who were obedient to their parents. And again, I think the same thing holds true. Children who dishonor and disobey their parents will be children who grow up to dishonor and disobey all authority and ultimately grow up who dishonor and disobey God. And there are many who say that they understand what it means to honor God as Christians. They give glory to God, but they simply do not always obey him. Those who honor God give honor to him in ways that honor is due. They treat his word in particular as special, as holy, as significant, as weighty, as important. Thus, they make it their aim to follow his word, to show its significance, importance to their lives. What did Jesus say to the disciples? If you love me, you'll do what? You'll keep my commandments. You'll treat my word as holy and special. You'll do it. Honoring is obeying. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. And what is that promise? He says that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Again, Paul is quoting from the Old Testament here. The implication of the law is that God's blessing is upon children who honor their parents. Children who honor their parents were blessed. The land was a sign of their blessing. The land was a land of promise. Therefore, God that God would give them long life in the land was indicative of his favor, his blessing upon them. Those who did not honor their parents, to the contrary, would not receive this kind of blessing from the Lord. Either their lives would have been cut short due to having received the judgment of the Lord by means of the law, or their lives would have been cut short due to some foolish act or decision they made in their adult lives because they grew up to be the same kind of person they were as a child, disobedient and rebellious. Either way, it's fair to say that you can tell what kind of life someone's going to have based on their relationship to their parents. That's a good principle even for today. Now, before we move on, I also note that children who do not learn to honor their parents by obeying them at a young age will have no concept of what it means to honor their parents in their older age. As children are young, to honor is to obey. When children are older, having left their home in care of their parents, perhaps when they form their own family unit, the command to honor still remains. The relationship has changed. Obedience is not required, but honor still is. To honor them in their later stage of life means, similarly, to continue to treat them as significant and important is to show respect and consideration. Now, at some point, the roles begin to reverse, right? Whereas your parents took care of you at the beginning of your life, when you were the most vulnerable and weak as a child, you then had the privilege of showing care for them when they are the most vulnerable and weak in their older 
stages of life. One author said it this way, honor of parents encompasses providing for them when they can no longer provide for themselves. Just as parents spent 20 or so years taking care of and providing for their children, their children are to spend whatever time and money is necessary to care for and provide for their parents should their parents no longer be able to do so for themselves. He says, when some Pharisees and scribes reprimanded Jesus for allowing his disciples to eat without first ceremonially washing their hands, he countered, And why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother. And he who speaks evil of father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever shall say to his father and mother, anything of mine you might have been helped by has been given to God. He is not to honor his father and mother. And thus you have invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. He says, Jesus made it clear that to honor parents includes financial support of them when needed. And the Pharisees were simply unwilling to do that. He says, obviously, simply providing financial support for one's parents in their old age falls short of honor if it is not done with loving personal involvement. Money cannot be an expression. Money can be an expression of love. It is never a substitute for love. A child can no more honor his parents by simply paying their bills than his parents could have responsibly raised him by only paying for his food, clothes, education, and other needs apart from loving care and personal involvement, end quote. Children, obey your parents, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the command of God for you, children. It is not that you become an influencer or, a, a, or on TikTok or Instagram. It is not that you go to school for multiple degrees, fame, and fortune. God's expectation for you, children, is command to you in your younger years is very simple. Obey your parents. Honor them. Learn to do that before you learn to do anything else. Learn to master that command, and that will set you on the right path, perhaps not a perfect path, It's not a magic formula. This is not the promise of a perfect life. But it is going to set you on the right path in the sight of God as you obey his command to honor your parents. Well, again, in this passage, we see that children are called to obey their parents for the glory of God, verses 1 through 3. And second, parents are called to convey the glory of God to their children. Look again at verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What we convey, what we communicate, what we teach is the most important aspect of our relationship with our children. And the Lord doesn't here address how well we provide for our children, what sneakers we buy, if we keep them in the latest clothes, if we send them to the best kind of schools, but rather the emphasis is on how we cultivate their character. Again, if we provide and protect as men, as parents, That's just basic to what it means to be a parent. That's not doing anything special. That's not being a good Christian. That's just being a good human being, right? Taking care of those basic needs, that's the least you could do. You don't get a pat on the back for that. However, what we convey to them and how we convey it to them, what we communicate to them is the most significant thing in God's eyes. That separates us from the unbelieving world. What we convey to them as their parents, as we see in this verse, should not lead them to anger, but rather what we convey, what we communicate to them as parents, should be instrumental in bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, he leads here with fathers. I wonder why he chooses to do that. He certainly has no problem referring to parents as he did in general in verse 1. He has no problem with indicating that honor is to go to both the mother and the father. It's not like there was a hierarchy of honor, honor fathers only. No, children are to honor and obey both father and mother. But when he transitions to address the parents, he leads with the fathers. 
That's significant. First, because of the two, fathers tend to be harder on their children. Of course, that's arguable, right? And that's not always the case. But I think that in general, women tend to be more gentle and kind and fathers tend to be a little bit harder. And for that reason, perhaps Paul leads with the exhortation to fathers not to provoke their children to anger. And we'll get back to that idea in a second. But second and more important, the reason why he leads to fathers here is that Paul is assuming the audience understands what he just said in verses 22 through 33 of chapter 5. Remember, I said that these two passages are linked. In order to get this passage right in terms of parenting, you have to get that other passage right in terms of the relationship between husbands and wives. Before you can even discuss the relationship of parents and children, you have to understand the significance of the relationship between husbands and wives. It is both prior to the relationship of parenting and it is foundation to that relationship in a biblical worldview. You cannot have a proper parent-child relationship, again, according to a biblical worldview, unless you have a solid relationship between a husband and wife. Again, the husband is the head of the wife. Thus, he is the head of the new family unit created when they were married. Thus, he is the head of the entire family. And just as he's responsible for the welfare, spiritual and otherwise, of his body, which is his wife, he is by extension responsible for the welfare of the extended family, meaning his children. So Paul is here calling upon the fathers first as they have overall responsibility of heads of their home. The implication is, men, that it is your primary responsibility to raise your children. Yes, you do it together with your wives. Yes, you may delegate significant responsibility to them, especially if they're the ones who stay home for all or most of the time with the children. But regardless of if they stay home or work, it is still your responsibility, men, fathers, to lead in the overall development and raising of your children before the Lord. I see way too many men when it comes to raising their children, turning a blind eye to their children, running wild in public, running wild at home. They defer to the mom. They essentially ignore the children and only step in when they have to, when things get really out of hand. We need to dispel the notion that just because mothers give birth to children, that it then becomes their sole responsibility for raising children. That is completely biblically inaccurate. And men have far too long shirked this responsibility within the home. I've mentioned before the whole idea of watching the kids as if it is the mother's sole responsibility. And if the dad is out with the kids, he's simply taking over for a little while. He's just watching them as if he's a babysitter. Then we can do better. Now, we can't do anything about perception. I mean, just the other day, I took my girls to a doctor's appointment and one of the nurses said something like, are you taking over for mom today? Now, she didn't mean it offensively, and I didn't comment on it because I didn't think it would come out right at the time. And the reality is that my wife generally does take the kids to the doctor's appointments, but I know what's happening in my kids' lives. I'm involved because I'm their dad, and I feel like I need to know what's going on, and I love them, and that's what dads do. And I take them places not just because mom can't do it, because I enjoy doing that because they're my kids, and I love them, and that's what dads do. The reality is, men, that when you stand before God, you can expect to give an account for how your children have been brought up before the Lord. Now, while Paul leads here with fathers, it is generally understood that parents as a whole take responsibility for and together engage in the process of raising children. That's not in dispute here. So it is safe to take all of what it says as an admonition to both the father and the mother as parents 
to their children. Again, children are a reward to the family. Psalm 127, we just read that. To the parents, he gives both a negative and positive command. Both of these refer to the overall course and direction of your parenting, to the raising of your children. When it comes to the negative command to parents, he says, do not provoke your children to anger. Now, certainly this applies to individual interactions, but it's not just about the moment. Again, it's about the whole course and action of your nurturing as parents. You should not be raising your children in such a way that it provokes them to anger. One author said it this way, to provoke to anger suggests a repeated ongoing pattern of treatment that gradually builds up a deep-seated anger and resentment that boils over into outward hostility. So we need to be careful that our parenting does not lead to that. Well, what might this look like? Well, certainly any form of abuse would fall under this category, right? This includes physical, emotional abuse, discouraging, demeaning, dismissive speech to children. This kind of trauma will undoubtedly evoke a response of anger from the child. It could be abuse, abuse from either parent or abuse of both parents. It doesn't really matter. Either way, that kind of thing generally builds up over time and leads to feelings of resentment and discouragement, and some of that depression that we read about earlier. Even if it is not to the degree of abuse, correcting your children and disciplining your children in anger can lead them to anger. Constantly blowing up at your children, yelling at them for any reason. If you do spank, spanking them when you are clearly and visibly angry. Throwing things around the house out of anger. Punishing them even beyond what is necessary for the offense. You see this a lot. The kid accidentally, I don't know, spills milk and you send them to their room and they can't, they're grounded for like a week, right? To that end, failing to ask for forgiveness when you lose your temper or step out of line can lead to anger in them. Or the other end of the spectrum, perhaps, is the parent who is overprotective. This can also lead to anger. This kind of parenting places restrictions on everything and often leaves no room for the child to grow into responsibility. You cannot place the same restrictions on a 17-year-old that you put on a 7-year-old. The 17-year-old will end up frustrated as they are fastly approaching the age when they'll likely be on their own anyway. Children who have such limitations arbitrarily placed on them inevitably end up resenting the restrictiveness of their parents and in anger, quote-unquote, running wild when they're able to get out on their own and do what they want. Parents should be considering the age and maturity of each individual child when considering what they give them permission to do. Conversely, giving the same freedom to a 7-year-old that should be limited to a 17-year-old can also lead to anger in the child, frustration. Too much freedom, too much choice, too many options, too much of anything well, as they used to say back in the day, spoil your child. I mean, even to this day, I go into some of these restaurants or some of these, uh, like, you, you know, you'll go into a bakery and there's like 2,000 different things that you can choose from, right? And it's not, it's not 2,000 different things. It's like five things, but there's like 50 different iterations of each thing. And I'm like, I don't even understand what all these are. How am I supposed to choose which one it is? And sometimes we give those kinds of options to our kids, like, we give them the option to eat whatever they want. Of course they're going to choose the sweet stuff, right? We give them the option to watch whatever they want on television or on our electronic device. We give them the option to go wherever they want 
to say whatever they want in whatever way they want to to us. You give them too many options and they're going to go crazy with that. And of course it's going to lead to more foolishness. What other things may provoke anger? How about favoritism? We've seen this in the case of Jacob favoring his son Joseph. And of course that eventually led to Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers. And while that may be unlikely in our society, we know that sibling rivalry Hatred between siblings, resentment of parents ultimately results from favoritism. The child, the one child, has done things that the parent used to do, played the same sports, the same instruments. Maybe that child has better grades, makes the honor rolls. That child is super talented in one thing or another. And it's not wrong to recognize and encourage your children when they do, they do well, but it is wrong to do that for one and not the other. You should be looking to find the individual and specific ways that each child excels and encouraging them in that thing, whatever that thing is. Perhaps they won't all excel in academics. That's okay. What do they excel in? What do they like? Encourage them in that. That and also you may provoke your children to anger by setting unrealistic expectations. Again, your child doesn't have to be the next academic prodigy. They don't have to be the next great athlete. They don't have to have the next best job. They don't have to have the best salary. They don't have to live in the best neighborhood. Encouraging your children to do well, to strive for excellence in all areas of life for the glory of God is good. But pushing your children to reach a certain expectation that you have for their life beyond their ability is certainly going to provoke them to anger. They may not be an A or B student. They need to know from you that this is okay. And that you still love them in spite of that. And that they're still going to be okay in life. They're still going to make it. Plenty of A and B students make it in life. Probably a ton of other issues that we could address. The reality is that any one of these things may happen from time to time. But the point is that your whole parenting style should not be characterized by these things. Your whole parenting style should consider whether or not your actions will lead your child to anger or to the Lord. Moving on, that brings us to the positive aspect of this command. Do not provoke them to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, listen, this is not the discipline and instruction of your parents. Your goal is not to raise children exactly as you were raised doing just what your parents did to you because you feel that you came out well. A lot of marriages find conflict because both sides desire to raise their children in the way that they were raised. Inevitably, it is because they view their form of discipline better. The reality is that we're not aiming for how we were raised. We're aiming for a higher standard. We're aiming for the standard that is the discipline and instruction of the Lord. If you're both aiming for that same standard, then you should do well in raising your children. And there should be no conflict. Again, it is not the discipline and instruction of your parents. It's also not the discipline and instruction of your anger. If all they know is that mom or dad is angry and unhappy about me doing something, then you've missed the entire point of discipline and instruction. The wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God, James says. Moreover, it is not the discipline and instruction of the world, the world psychologists, the school system, its counselors, the governments, and its experts. 
It's also not the discipline and instruction of the church. It's not the church's job to raise your children. As I've alluded to earlier, the world is already pushing for this kind of approach to parenting, the kind of approach to parenting where parents take their hands off and leave the raising of their children to the experts. They're saying that they are the ones who should be deciding how your children are are raised and what they learn and what they think about life. They should be the ones to decide how your children are instructed in matters pertaining to life, gender, the meaning of life, and human sexuality. That's not what God's word says. God's word says that we parents have the responsibility of raising them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You parents are instructed to bring them up this way. Again, not the school, not society, not Hollywood, not the experts. You parents are instructed to bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Well, what is the discipline of the Lord? I think we all understand that. Paul refers to this in Hebrews chapter 12. He says there, And have you forgotten the exhortation which addresses to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved of him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet for those who have been trained by it afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now, just three things I want to point out from this passage. And Paul is quoting here from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 12, and also Deuteronomy 8. First, the Lord loves those whom he disciplines. We saw that in verse 6 and also verses 10 and 11. If he loves you, if you're truly a son or daughter of his, if you belong to God, to his family, then he disciplines you out of love. He disciplines you out of love and ultimately for your good. He doesn't want you to continue to live in any old way. He wants you to live in a way that is good and right. He wants to set boundaries. He commands you to abide by those boundaries and gives you consequences out of love so that you do not overstep those boundaries and walk in a way that is not good. I remember a picture. I think it was a picture on a track of this um, two boys, one boy standing by a fence. Looks like just a fence. And the other boy running to jump over the fence. And the one kid said, the one who's jumping over the fence says, I don't like boundaries. And you see him just, you know, hopping over. But on the other side of the fence, you see there's just a straight drop off all the way down that the kid obviously didn't see when he went to jump. And the second kid who's standing by him says, it's not a boundary, it's a guardrail. And that's why God sets boundaries for us. It's not to keep us from having fun. It's to protect us. It's to guard us. That's what discipline is for. Discipline is to protect us. It's to guard us. It's to help us to know that the way we're going is not right. It's going to lead to pain. It's going to lead to danger. Ultimately, he says in the text that he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. 
He wants to protect us from foolishness. He wants to protect us from harm. And ultimately, he wants to lead us to holiness and righteousness. And likewise, parents, as you're disciplining your children, the reason why you're disciplining them is not because you're angry. It's not just because, you know, the Bible says so, which you should do it because the Bible says so. But ultimately, you should be disciplining your children because you love them. And you want them to walk in a way that is good and right. And you don't want them to grow up to be children who don't respect boundaries. Because it's not going to be good for them. And parents can hold each other accountable for this kind of thing. Second, if you're without discipline, you do not belong to him. I think it's very clear in verse 8. If you say that you belong to Jesus, but you're living in sin, disobeying his clear commands, and you've not experienced his chastening hand, everything you do is fine, there's nothing wrong with it, no conviction, no difficulty in pursuing it, no one speaking in your life to the contrary, then you probably don't belong to him. If you're not experiencing chastening from your sin, then you probably don't belong to God because he disciplines those whom he loves. Proverbs 13.24 says, He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. To withhold discipline to a son is indicative of a lack of love for the child, but the Lord does love us, and therefore he disciplines those who belong to him. Therefore, if you don't receive his discipline, then you don't belong to him. Parents, you ought to be disciplining your children. It's not someone else's responsibility to discipline your children. Society around you is not responsible for disciplining your children. You're responsible for that because they belong to you. Third, discipline brings sorrow. Verse 11. If your discipline of your children leaves them laughing or mocking at you, mocking you, then your discipline has fallen short. If your discipline of your children leaves them completely unaffected and unwilling to change, then you've missed the mark. Obviously, this does not provide a license to abuse, right? Even if you apply the use of the rod, as it's called in Scripture, it should not be to the degree that it leaves a mark or any permanent damage. That's too far. But your discipline should bring sorrow. It should smart. Pain in general tells our body that something is wrong. The feel of a hot stove causes, many, causes us to move away. The sound of an animal growling in the dark woods causes our hearts to beat faster, fight or flight to kick in, us to start wondering why in the world we're in the midst of a dark wood anyway. So also your discipline of your children should lead them to sorrow for what they've done. We talked earlier briefly about consequences being given that are appropriate to age. When children are very young and have little understanding of the concepts of right or wrong, obedience and disobedience, morality in God's world, and physical pain, perhaps the physical pain of a quick swat on the bottom, for example, helps them to understand that the thing they're being told no about should not continue. Just saying no doesn't always work. It usually doesn't. They might just say no back to you and laugh. And if you wait for them after you say no multiple times, they just learn to obey you until you get angry and get up to do something. You should be training them for first-time obedience because that's what obedience is, as we said earlier. It's an immediate response, listening to and doing what was told. But you need to provide them with a tangible reason to stop doing the thing that they're doing or else they won't get it when they're very young. But as they get older and their understanding grows, those consequences change. You move from those physical, tangible things that bring sorrow to something else that brings sorrow. 
the loss of a privilege or toy, a time out or time away from something that they enjoy. Timeouts for very young children, again, are sometimes pretty pointless because they don't really have a good concept of time. But for older children who enjoy playing with toys or reading or playing video games or going out with their friends or whatever it is, a time out from one of those things can invoke sorrow. Whatever you choose to do, the purpose ought to be to train them, to help them to understand, to lead them to the point of sorrow so that they know that the thing that I'm doing is not right. And this is ultimately to give them the same discipline that the Lord gives to us out of love and for our good, for our holiness. Moving on, not only are we to raise our children in the discipline of the Lord, we're also to raise them in his instruction. And the primary thing you should be asking yourself about is what kind of person does the Lord expect for us to be? That's what kind of truth should I be conveying to my children now, today? How am I going to build them up? What should I give them? What should I put before them to help them to understand how to live and to operate in God's world? as one made in his image. Again, we're intended to send them out. They're given to us for a time, and we have a relatively limited time to have them. But we're supposed to be sending them out into the world like arrows. So what are the things that they need to know and understand? Start very young. Start as early as you can to instruct them in the Lord. Here are just a few things. Instruct your children to fear the Lord. God's word says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? Teach them that they live in God's world, that he created them, that they belong to him, including their bodies. This means that all that they do should be done for his glory. Teach them this early by word, but also by your example. They won't understand it all when they're very young, but it will become clearer as they grow. As soon as the opportunity presents itself, and as often as you can, preach the gospel to them. Again, they won't always understand it, but give them the gospel as often as you can. When you have those conversations, those correcting conversations, those disciplining conversations with them, talk to them about the reason why they continue to do what is wrong, the reason why they're choosing not to do what you ask them to do. It's because you have sin in your heart. And what are you going to do about that? What can you do about that? What is telling you to disobey what I just said? What is telling you to take that away from your sister or your brother? What's telling you to throw that toy? It's sin in your heart. Jesus can do something about that for you. Call sin what it is. Call sin what the Bible calls it. Calls, again, it's not just about the terrible twos. It's about sin, right? Right? Call sin what it is and help them to understand that they live in God's world. Help them to understand that Jesus is the answer. Second, instruct your children to respect authority. We talked about that already, but all authority is given by God. That should be honored. First, teach them to respect your authority, but also other authorities. But make sure that they understand that no authority should instruct them to do something that God has not commanded. Third, instruct your children to be self-controlled. True self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, and your children are not born with the Spirit, but they can learn a measure of self-control, and they should. Some, not all of the problems that children report, that are reported with children nowadays, ADD, ADHD, many of the other behavioral problems, start as a result of children lacking self-control and not being encouraged to control themselves. 
I said some, not all. The reality is that children can generally learn to control themselves as parents work with them from the beginning to do so. Do not let toddlers throw things at the table, become angry and scream to get what they want. Do not let them hit each other. Do not let them throw themselves down on the floor and throw tantrums. Those things are evidence of a lack of self-control. They don't have self-control naturally until you need to train them and teach them, instruct them to be self-controlled. Instruct them to obey you the first time you command them. And that's what obedience is. We've already said that. Obedience is immediate. It is first time. It's the only kind of obedience. Train them to listen for your voice. This is especially important if you go out with them, right, for practical reasons. You go out with them. You're in a busy place. They need to be listening for your voice and not just wandering off doing whatever they want. This free-range parenting stuff is nonsense, Why would you just let your kid go about doing whatever they want? Again, I mean, imagine your child just walking about, walking towards a busy road, not looking and paying attention at the 18-wheeler that's barreling down the road and not stopping, but they just keep on walking. And you call out to them, But at this point in your parenting, your parenting has been, hey, I need to call them five or six times, and then I need to count to ten, and then I need to snap my finger, and I need to clap my hand to get their attention, because you haven't trained them to listen to your voice and obey your voice the first time. And that may seem like an outrageous example, but it's not all that outrageous. Instruct your parents, about the nature of human sexuality according to the word of God. When they're very young, this is simple. They're a little boy or a little girl. God made them that way, and it is very good that he made them that way. They're just the way that God intended for them to be either male or female. That was determined at birth because that's the way God wanted it. Teach them that they were made by God. Their bodies belong to him. This is why we keep ourselves covered in public because everybody doesn't see everything about your body. Because it belongs to God. And your body belongs to God until your body belongs to your spouse. That's why we pursue modesty. That's why we pursue holiness and purity. Nobody else needs to see the form of your body or different parts of your body apart from your spouse and the Lord. Perhaps have a conversation with them about beauty, that beauty is not the picture they see in the social media and in the movies. Beauty is not even what they see from their peers. Beauty starts in the heart. It's not wrong to want to be beautiful on the outside, but that should not be idolized, especially because beauty on the outside is fading. Eventually, you need to talk to them about the opposite sex, about relationships, the desire for relationships, that it's not wrong, doesn't need to be awkward, and that their peers are not the authority on those things. Because that's inevitably what ends up happening. Talk with them about sex. Sex is not evil. It's not a bad word. It's not dirty. It's not unnatural. It is good when it is done according to God's design and in the context of marriage as he designed it. Teach them also that the angst they feel as teenagers is normal. Again, those record levels of sadness and depression, the discouragement that they feel as things are just 
Their life is kind of a roller coaster. Their emotions are a roller coaster. Things are changing in life. Everything in the world, in their little world, is changing because they're transitioning from childhood to adulthood, and they're starting to think adult thoughts, and they still sometimes think child thoughts, and it's just difficult. It's a, it's a hard time period to be in, but it's okay. Difficulty in life is okay. Struggling in life is okay. Anxiety is okay. We all have it. We all struggle with it. As much as we want to protect them from the difficult things in life, from anxiety, from troubles and trials, that's not our job as parents. Our job is to point them to the one who is able to be with them and the one who is able to help them to endure those difficulties. Teach them also that nothing can separate them from your love. Teach them that early. Teach them that often. Tell them that often. Give them that confidence so that when they get to passages like Romans chapter 8 talking about God's love, they have a concept for that. They won't have a concept for that if you're not doing it, if you're not showing them that unconditional love. If you just turn around and get angry at them at the drop of a hat and you hold grudges and you're just bitter against them and you go about the house grumbling because they did something wrong or didn't obey you, that's not helping them to understand and have a concept for unconditional love, the love of God. Many other things we could mention, the pursuit of wisdom, the value of your word, speaking truth. How about just letting them know that their thoughts, their interests, their words, their struggles are important to you so that they see you as someone who cares. At a very early age, listening to all of the things that they go on and on about, that you may not always understand all of it, and you may not always want to hear all of it, but you listen to it when they're two, so that when they're 20, they're willing to come to you, and they know you'll listen then. Teach them all of these things as Moses commanded at all times and all circumstances at every opportunity. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words, the commands of the Lord, the instruction of the Lord, these words, Paul, uh, Paul Moses says, which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way when you lie down and when you rise up. Don't just wait to go to church to instruct them in the Lord. Talk to them about the Lord all the time, every opportunity you get. And many of you are grandparents. When you have those grandkids hanging out around the house, when you go over to see them and you're rejoicing because you know they go home at the end of the day, whatever time you have with them, take time to tell them about Jesus. And pray for your children. Pray for them, pray with them, pray for their salvation, pray for wisdom, pray for holiness, pray that they would use their lives to give glory to Jesus, pray that they would walk in truth, walk in love, pray for them, pray with them, pray. If you get none of what I said this whole time, as it says in Hebrews chapter 12, if all you can give them is one thing, teach them to fix their eyes on Jesus. And that'll be enough. I like this quote. I mean, I don't know who this man is who said it, but he's described as an older Christian man. He says, and I quote, my family's all grown up and the kids are all gone, but if I had to do it all over again, this is what I would do. 
I would love my wife more in front of my children. I would laugh with my children more at our mistakes and our joys. I would listen more even to the littlest child. I would be more honest about my own weaknesses, never pretending perfection. I would pray differently for my children. Instead of focusing on them, I'd focus on me. I would do more things together with my children. I would encourage them more and bestow more praise. I would pay more attention to the little things like deeds of words, deeds and words of thoughtfulness. And then finally, if I had to do it all over again, I would share God more intimately with my family. Every ordinary thing that happened in every ordinary day, I would use to direct them to God. That is the privilege that we have as parents as we prepare to send our children out into the world. Now we're closing out this section on the family and we're reminded that it is all of the Lord. Husbands and wives are to submit to the command of the Lord in their relationship. Parents and children are to submit to the command of the Lord in their relationship. All of us exist for the glory of God. We're to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. This includes the family. Families are ultimately commanded to submit to the Lord's way, both to bring glory to him and for their ultimate good. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. Again, your word, which is truth, your word, which sanctifies us. We pray, God, as we continue to think about these truths that we've studied, that you would help to make these things true of us, of our families, that we would walk as submitted to you, that we would encourage one another in that, that we would do this both for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Christ's blessed name. Amen.